Last week was Ascension Sunday, and we dwelt on the intercessory work of our exalted head and king, the Lord Jesus. What a great theme that was. And this is Pentecost. And so we have set aside Matthew for these two Sundays so that we may dwell upon these themes. And I ask, if you will, now to turn to the second chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 22 through 41. Acts chapter 2. We're breaking into the midst of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, beginning in verse 22. Let us pray together before reading. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. We praise you for revealing yourself to us in the Word of God as one God in three persons. We praise you for showing to us constantly the application of these truths to our lives in communion with you, Father, in communion with you, Lord Jesus, and in communion with you, blessed Holy Spirit. And now we pray that since the Spirit comes to exalt Jesus, that Christ will be exalted in the preaching of the Word of God, that the kingdom of God would be restored in those hearts that, that are far from your kingdom this day, and that your people will be built up in the most holy faith. Will you hear our prayer, Lord, for all is in vain, except the Holy Spirit bless the reading and proclamation of his word. Attend with that power that comes from on high, which only you, O Lord, can bring about. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 22. This is the word of God. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will make full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ." This Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, most often when I have preached or taught on the day of Pentecost in this congregation, I have focused upon what was unique about Pentecost, that it was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, that it was the fulfillment of the prophecy of John the Baptist, that he baptized with water, but one would come after him whose shoe latches he was not worthy to untie, who had baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire that this is the day in which there's the baptism of the Spirit that creates the new covenant community into missionary church, that this is a unique baptism with the Holy Spirit that is once for all, that it's connected with the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and now the outpouring of the Spirit as one complex of events never to be repeated. But that continues to have effect because that one baptism upon the church we all partake in when we come to know Jesus, for we are baptized by one spirit into one body. Those are the things about Pentecost that are absolutely unique and that are unrepeatable, but I'm not going to focus there today. I don't want to focus upon those things that are not repeatable. I want to focus upon those things that are repeatable. I want to focus upon those things that, that continue to happen throughout the age until Jesus comes again that we see here on the day of Pentecost. So there are those things that are unique, that are unrepeatable. There are also those things that we need to understand are repeatable for us today. And so the theme of the sermon is simply this. The continuing work of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin and call to Christ. The continuing work of the Spirit of God is to convict us sinners of our sins and to draw sinners to Christ. And we begin by saying, first of all, that the Holy Spirit uses means. The Holy Spirit uses means for the accomplishment of his sovereign work and purpose, to bless his church and to extend her evangelism. The Holy Spirit has chosen to use certain means, and two of them are emphasized in the first two chapters of the book of Acts. The first mean that the Holy Spirit chooses to use is prayer. Now, you will remember back in chapter 1 of the book of Acts in verse 4 that the Lord says, And while staying with them, he ordered them, this is before his ascension, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. And looking over at verse 14, after the ascended Christ has gone to be at the right hand of the Father, in verse 14, He says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Prayer. Jesus commanded that his church tarry in prayer, awaiting the promise of the coming of the Spirit of God. And prayer is still the Spirit's way of blessing. It is your ongoing call as a Christian and our ongoing call together as a congregation to be a congregation that is a prayerful congregation. 
As a matter of fact, if you look after the day of Pentecost in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, we read, and they devoted themselves. These are those newly converted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And so it is your ongoing call to pray. Now, you know that. All of us know that. But all of us also need to hear that. (laughs) Because we can become a very prayerless lot, can't we? We can neglect prayer, may we not, in our own Christian lives. This is the ongoing, regular mean that God has appointed in his church for the extension of his kingdom, prayer, and it is not to be neglected by the people of God. It is central to who we are, central to our life together as a congregation, central to your own Christian life. Do you realize that in all of the revivals, I'm talking about genuine revival, that, is, that have come to the church of Jesus Christ throughout the centuries, that in all of them, that I, of which I have any knowledge, there has been the precursor of prayer, every one of them. Take the 59 revival in Northern Ireland, in Ulster. You may not know of that revival, but it was powerful. Men and women right and left coming to know Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon came over from London and preached. Others were there preaching the word of God. And it seemed that everywhere the word of God was proclaimed, especially in the Presbyterian and Reformed churches, men and women were coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a powerful revival, but before that, there had been a dearth. And there was one elder and one old woman, very old woman, that gathered together consistently for prayer when others would not come. And they pled before God to send revival And then God began to add to their numbers, and the prayer meeting began to extend throughout Northern Ireland. And then there was the accompaniment of the Spirit of God and power upon the proclamation of the Word of God. Let me give you another example. Do you know what happened in Korea in 1907? Especially among Presbyterian churches, by the way. There were prayer meetings and Bible studies. They gathered together, ministers in particular, and as they gathered together, the Holy Spirit began as they prayed to uncover their hearts and to show them them their sins. And they confessed their sins to God, and they stood up, and they confessed their sins to one another. Jealousy and strife and hatred and bitterness, all of these things were confessed. And the Holy Spirit began to work in marvelous ways among them to uncover the heart, and it spread through the congregations. This was in North Korea. And the Holy Spirit began to work in powerful and wonderful ways. And within a short space of a few years, 80,000 people approximately were added to the churches of Korea. By the way, preparing them for a very, very difficult time that was about to come upon them. A mighty revival, an answer to prayer, as we see in Acts chapter 1 and its fulfillment in Acts chapter 2. Marvelous. And you know what? It spread among the young people, especially. Upon school children. They had to stop school. Now, don't get any ideas. (laughs) But they had to stop school because the young people were pleading for God's blessing and confessing their sins also one to another. Marvelous, marvelous thing. So powerful it has been called the Korean Pentecost. Let me ask you something. Do your preachers stand in this pulpit on Sunday morning bathed in your prayers, people of God? How dare the minister come into the pulpit without preparing his mind and his heart 
pleading with God for blessing upon the preaching of the Word of God. But may I reverently say, how dare you, people of God, allow your minister to come into the pulpit if he is not bathed in your prayers? Do you believe, as I do, that if we pray and seek the Lord, that that itself is the movement of the Spirit of God within our hearts and that He hears and answers the prayers of His people as we saw last week through the intercessory work of Christ and that the Holy Spirit would mightily bless this ministry in ways that we've not yet counted? And maybe, 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 if you begin to pray, you will be the one that God uses, that spark that lights the fire, Oh, people of God, your preachers must preach with your prayers on our side. That's why Peter can preach this sermon with such blessing on the day of Pentecost. So the first meme that the Holy Spirit uses is prayer. But there's a second meme that he uses, and that is preaching. The Lord has ordained the preaching of his word until Christ comes again, as Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. What to the world is a foolish method and a foolish message, God shows through that foolishness his absolute power to save and to change and transform lives. Paul says in Romans 10, How shall they hear without a preacher? God has ordained this preaching. And so we have this sermon. We've read a a significant portion of it this morning here that Peter preached. The first public sermon after the ascension of our Lord into heaven. And the whole sermon points to Christ. You see a desire on Peter's part to win men to Jesus. It is earnest, it is urgent, and most importantly, that sermon is Christ exalting. Now that leads us to our second point. We've seen that the Holy Spirit uses means, prayer and preaching, and in that preaching he exalts Christ. So that's the second point. The Holy Spirit exalts Christ. John 16 Verse 26, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will testify of me. That's what Jesus says. In other words, when the Spirit of God comes, he will exalt Christ. Let me say something parenthetically. Have you ever noticed that in John 14 through 16, where we have that upper room discourse as Jesus is looking to go to the cross that he finds the most important thing he can teach his church is about the Trinity? You ever thought about that? John 14 to 16, what does he teach? I'm about to go to the cross. And so he teaches his disciples, I want you to know about the Trinity. That's what he teaches. How important, how essential, how crucial the doctrine of the Trinity is. And he says, when the Spirit of God is poured out, after I'm ascended, I will pour out, I will not leave you orphans, The Spirit of God will be there, and when the Spirit of God comes, the Spirit's role will be to testify about me. If we, in our church, focused on the Holy Spirit, now we should teach about the Holy Spirit, we should say what the Bible says, we should love the third person of the Trinity, but if our focus were there, then we would know that we are not filled with the Spirit. Because the indispensable evidence that a church is filled with the Holy Spirit, that a Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit, the indispensable evidence that a preacher is filled with the Spirit of God is that Christ is exalted because that's the role of the Spirit to come and to exalt the living Jesus. Now what does Peter say about Christ as he exalts him in this passage? First, 
as he preaches, he preaches Christ and him crucified. You see verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, authorized version. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He preaches Christ and him crucified. He says to them, what you did was against the will of God, but not without the will of God. He preaches predestination. He says that the cross was no accident, that the cross was determined by God's eternal counsel. He says the guilt is yours, for you crucified him, but the purpose is God's to save sinners by means of the cross. He preaches Christ and him crucified. Second thing he preaches is Christ's resurrection from the dead. Verse 24, for example, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. You can destroy Jesus on a cross only because he willingly gave himself there, but you can never destroy the purpose for which Christ came. You can never destroy the eternal purpose of God to redeem his people through the work of Jesus Christ. You cannot destroy God's purpose in Christ. The Father raised him from the dead. He lives. And the third thing he preaches is Christ was exalted by the Father. Let's read again these powerful verses beginning in verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so he cites the 110th Psalm, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou at thy right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Total subjection. He has been declared Lord by his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, and now he has poured out the gift of the Spirit on the church. To sum up what Peter preaches, he says, Look, the Lord that you crucified now sits in infinite majesty in the place of power and of judgment. And the implication is this, bow, therefore bow, bow now before this exalted, ascended, powerful Lord who pours out his spirit on this day. In another connection, some other text I was reading, Charles Spurgeon made a comment that arrested me. He said, I noticed that at this time, few writers or preachers use the expression, our Lord, Jesus Christ. We have lives of Christ and lives of Jesus, but brethren, he is the Lord. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. We need to acknowledge his deity, his dominion, and his anointing. He is God over all, blessed forever, and we can never praise him too much. 
A great and grievous error of the times is a want of reverence for our Lord and His sacrifice. To sit in judgment on His sacred teaching is to spit in His face. To deny His miracles is to strip Him of His own clothes. To make Him out to be a mere teacher of ethics is to mock Him with a purple robe. And to deny His atonement in philosophical phraseology is to crown Him with thorns and crucify Him afresh and put Him to an open shame. Be not guilty of this, my hearers. For God hath made this same Jesus both Lord and Christ. Let us worship Him as Lord and trust Him as Christ. Jesus is Lord. People of God, Jesus, your Savior, is Lord. And you, by grace, have bowed the knee and the heart to Him now. But the time is coming that whether or not someone has bowed the knee or not, you will. When Jesus comes again, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, mistake it not, this risen, exalted Christ now has been displayed as Lord over His church and Lord over your heart. He is the sovereign monarch of the souls of men. Third point. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. Again, John 16, verse 8. Teaching about the Spirit that would come, Jesus said, and when He has come, He will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. That is, He will bring conviction of sin. What means does the Spirit use? Primarily the preaching the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the preaching about their sin in relationship to the cross. What are the the sins of our day in relation to the cross? We see the sins of this day. These are the people, many of them undoubtedly, who had with the crowd called out, crucify him, crucify him. They had nailed the Son of God to a cross. What are the sins of our day? about which in our day men and women and children should be convicted of sin. Well, there are all sorts of things, are there not? There's theological blasphemy, modern theories of the atonement that deny the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, theological blasphemy of all sorts. Oh, what error there is in the church today. What shame that there is such error in the church today when we have a clear Bible and the Spirit of God to guide us. Another, ignoring Christ's person and work. Someone here, you've heard the gospel preached time after time after time, and you have ignored the person of Christ. You have ignored the work of Christ. You have ignored the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and its implications for your life. Another sin of our day in relation to the cross, people who reject the gospel out and out. Hating Christ, hating His gospel, refusing His gospel, and forsaking Christ when one has professed faith in Christ. Having professed faith in Christ and walking away from that profession. Some having come to the table of the Lord and walking away from that profession of faith in Christ. And then there's something about which every day we should think. We used to use the term backsliding. You remember that? Some of you? You rarely hear it. 
failure to continue to make progress in my Christian life, falling back. Not understanding daily faith and daily repentance before the throne of God's sovereign grace. These are the sins of our day in relation to the cross. But the Spirit of God will not leave His chosen that way. He will save His people. And what happens when there is true conviction of sin? Three things. When there's true conviction, there's shame. These people are ashamed that they took part in the crucifixion of Jesus. There's fear. They cried out, What shall we do? They're afraid. Here is this exalted Christ at the right hand of the Father who now pours out the Spirit. Their hearts are fearful. What shall we do? And there is self-condemnation. They saw themselves as those who crucified Jesus, just as every true sinner that comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ understands that it was my sins who put him there. Self-condemnation. You see what happened on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit showed these sinners the enormity of their sin. But the Holy Spirit did not show these sinners the enormity of their sin in order to leave them there, did he? The Holy Spirit showed to these sinners the enormity of their sin so that they would be drawn to a Savior whose grace and whose power to save is greater than their sin. And this is the continuing work of the Holy Spirit today, to convict of sin and to draw men and women and children out of darkness into light, out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God's own dear Son, to draw us away from that that sin and that depravity into the marvelous grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood can cleanse the foulest, the foulest sinner and the foulest sin. I know that's true brothers and sisters, because he cleansed me. You don't know my heart. You know, Thomas Manton was preaching the gospel once. People were going out the door shaking his hand. Oh, Dr. Manton. Someone said to this great Puritan preacher, Oh, Dr. Manton, I wish I had your heart. Madam, he said, if you had it, you would soon wish for your own again. My heart, filthy, foul, I was an angry sinner, angry with God, angry with men, filled with hatred. God saved my soul. His grace, He showed to be greater than all my sin. He convicted me, but He didn't leave me there. He drew me on to the cross of Jesus and to the resurrected Lord. Which leads me to the fourth thing that I want us to see in the text. The fourth. The Holy Spirit converts sinners. The Holy Spirit converts sinners. Look at verse 38. Read verse 37 as well. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
The Holy Spirit converts sinners. Now let's unpack this. First of all, the Holy Spirit regenerates sinners. He grants the new birth. This is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. You see, we are dead in trespasses and sins. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves or to bring ourselves into some savable state. Nothing whatsoever. John Gill, the Calvinist Baptist minister of the 18th century, was preaching on the depravity of man. Someone came up to him and was so angry that he had underscored the depravity of man. Dr. Gill said to him, well, what do you think that you can do to bring yourself into a savable state? All kinds of things, he said. Well, would you list them for me? And he began to list all of these things that he thought he naturally could do to bring himself into a savable state, to bring himself to Jesus, to bring himself into salvation. Dr. Gill said to him, have you done those things? And the man said to him, well, I must say, I've not then you're doubly damnable. For you say that you can bring yourself into a savable state and you've not done it. Pray, when you've done it, come back and tell me that you've done it. For what I read in my Bible is that there is only one way that a man can be saved, and that is by the sovereign grace of God. This is the work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God must open the heart, transform the heart, draw the sinner. All that the Father giveth unto me shall come unto me, and him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. No man can come to me except the Father draw him, and him I will raise up in the last day. That's what's happening here on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit regenerates. And then the Holy Spirit grants faith and repentance so that the sinner may respond to the message. Faith which means not only intellectual assent, but it means trust, fiducia, resting completely in what Christ has done. And then the word that Peter uses, the word repentance. The missing note in preaching today. Repentance, the obverse side of faith. Where there is true faith, there also is true repentance, which means a change of mind, a change of direction. Repentance. These are not the causes of salvation. These are the soul crying out, I can do nothing for myself. These are the gifts of grace to those who by grace see their total ruin and impotence and incapability. Only the Spirit of God can grant faith. By grace are you saved through faith, and that, that faith is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then, will you notice that this Spirit of God who regenerates and opens hearts, who grants the gift of faith and repentance so that Jesus offered in the gospel may be freely embraced, will you also notice with me in Acts chapter 2 that he saves all sorts of sinners, all kinds of sinners from all different places in the world. Notice the geography and nationality here on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God has come, the sound of a mighty rushing wind, filling the entire house where they were sitting. The tongues of fire appear upon the apostles. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. As they, as they preached the gospel in languages that were understandable, We find here in verse 8 and following where they were from. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? 
Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Men from all over the world, the upstanding, the moral, the murderer. God saved murderers on the day of Pentecost. Not only murderers, as awful as murder is, but those who murdered the Son of God. Verse 23 of chapter 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Murderers. And so I ask you this question, people of God. If on the day of Pentecost, God in his sovereign grace and mercy can save those who nailed the Son of God to a cross. Tell me, what sin may he not forgive? Some of you sitting here who think, I've sinned too deeply, I can't come to him. I've sinned too gravely, I can't know Jesus. I've sinned so much, I'm not going to come to God. I'm not worthy of coming to God. I ask you again, what Sin is too great. What sin is too deep that Jesus Christ cannot cleanse it with his own blood? Owen somewhere says, show me the sinner that can stretch his sins to the dimensions of the grace of God. The infinite grace of God that can forgive you and me that infinitely evil sin of the human heart of rebellion against him. You know the hymn of John Newton? I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and in blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. Where shall your trembling soul find refuge? There is only one answer to that question, and that is in the blood of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit can so open a heart. You can't, I can't. You share the gospel. You're called to do that. I will preach the gospel. I am called to do that. But I am aware totally and utterly that I cannot save a sinner and I cannot convert a soul. But the Holy Spirit can. The blessed, powerful, wonderful, sweet, effectual drawing of the Spirit of God can save the sinner. Now let's draw conclusions. I'm only going to bring two. You know I could bring a lot more. (laughs) Two. I have two. The first is, I think that studying Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, 
calls us as a congregation to prayer. Don't you? And I've been thinking about this a lot. John Welch, one of those old preachers, prayed seven to eight hours a day. He prayed long into the night into the early morning, and his wife said, Why are you doing this? And he answered, I have 3,000 souls under my charge and do not know how they stand with God. Now, I am not suggesting that you are all called to pray long into the night and into the early morning. As a matter of fact, to do so might be irresponsible given, given some of your callings in life. But I am saying we really need to heed these texts. And we need to understand that in our individual lives and in our corporate life together, we need to pray. I think of one minister of a bygone day. His ministry was so incredibly powerful. Why? Because they dropped in, someone dropped in on a Monday night and found that the bottom floor and the gallery was filled for a prayer meeting every Monday night. I mentioned the 1907 Korean revival. Do you know what happened? That spirit of prayer? To this day, in the Presbyterian churches in Korea, there's a prayer meeting at 6 a.m. every morning. Corporate prayer meeting, 6 a.m. every morning. And another one at about 9.15 or 9.30 on Friday night. When I was a student at Westminster Seminary, the Korean students were so incredibly prayerful. They would gather for prayer before the rest of us were on campus. Many of them would pray during lunch, would fast and give their money to the seminary for its operations. Prayer. And so if someone would hear this and say, you know what, I'm going to obey the word of God and I'm going to become more prayerful. I'm going to bend the knee. I'm going to plead that God bless the preaching of the word in this place and bless the ordinary means with remarkable effect. I believe God will hear that prayer, don't you? And you know what else? If the elders in our congregation will say, you know, we heard the pastor say this from the pulpit. Now, we're going to reason together about ways to encourage corporate prayer and to improve our prayer life as a congregation. And then if the elders begin to actually, and the deacons begin to actually, and their lives become more significantly prayerful because we cannot expect the congregation to exceed the leadership. So wouldn't it be wonderful if the elders said, you know what, we're going to start having a corporate prayer meeting on certain times, and, and it's going to be a time we're going to be there, every elder, every deacon, and we're going to encourage all of our people to be there. We're going to plead with God. Only a prayer meeting, you say. Spurgeon did a little book called Only a Prayer Meeting. Oh, only a prayer meeting? That's the first application. The second is simply this. If you are here today with the worshiping people of God and you don't know Christ or you have wandered from Christ or you have seen the cross and turned from the cross, don't do that. Come to Jesus. Come to Christ. On the day of Pentecost, these lost sinners found remission of their sins through the very blood that they had shed. And the Holy Spirit is able to make you rely on the blood of Jesus for eternity. Oh, let us believe in the Holy Spirit, people of God, and pray that the Holy Spirit will use our worship services to convert the lost. And hear the words of this old hymn, Stay not pondering on your sorrow, turn from your own self away. 
Do not linger till tomorrow. Come to Christ without delay. Come to Christ. Come to Him now. Come to Him right where you are. Come to Him. Come to Him without delay. Amen.